0: looking at disciple-making in the early church. We're looking at uh, what lessons can we learn from this to help us to fulfill our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going through the book of Acts to try to learn from the early church so that we can better fulfill our vision and our mission. This week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26. Um, And this is uh, kind of a follow-up to last week's sermon. Last week was... um, Essential ingredients for a disciple-making strategy, and this is essential ingredients for a disciple-making strategy, part two, I guess. And, you know, last week we saw three uh, very important points in the early church, and that was Sabbath, you know, this Sabbath time of resting in the Lord through worship and allowing Him to recreate us. We also saw, um, oh, sorry, we also saw Community. How community was so important in the early church. Spending time with other believers um, for the purpose of becoming better disciples and making disciples. And thirdly, we saw prayer. And this uh, prayer is having a meaningful and purposeful emphasis on prayer, not just reading names off of a list or or not just uh, saying that we are a praying church, but actually believing in the power of prayer. This passage shows us two more essential ingredients for our disciple making strategy. And first, that's Bible study, knowing the scriptures. And secondly, that is dependence on the Holy Spirit. Um, So let's go ahead and jump right into it. In uh, verse 15, I'm going to read 15 through 20. It says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scriptures be fulfilled. That the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And then in verse Luke, uh, verse eighteen, Luke kind of gives us a little bit of a, a graphic side notes. He says, "Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first. Sorry, he fell head first. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem." so that in their own language, that is called that field is called hakeldama, that is, field of blood. And then in verse 20, Peter continues, For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate. Let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. And so here in these first um, few verses, we want to pull out the importance of Bible study. You know, I think God is showing us here that Bible study and knowing his word is important. So let's get a little bit of context here. We have to go back a little bit farther for the context in this one. Um, remember in the Bible study methodology that I, I, I talk about and I'm trying to model that context and understanding the context of the passage is extremely important. We have to try to understand where the author is coming from and who the audience is and how they would have understood this. And so the context here, we look... And we have to go back to Jesus's ministry on earth. And we see that Judas betrayed Jesus. See, Jesus had 12 disciples who followed him almost everywhere he went throughout his ministry. And Judas was one of these 12. He walked with Jesus for about three, three and a half years, seeing his ministry, hearing his teaching and watching Jesus's miracles. Jesus, uh, sorry, Judas was trusted among the disciples. And we know that he was trusted because he was basically their treasurer. He kept the money bag. Now you're not just going to let somebody keep the money who you don't trust. So they trusted Judas, but Judas betrayed him. Here in verses 18 and 19, uh, Luke tells us about Judas's fate. He says, "Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head, head first; his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out." This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field is called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. Matthew 27 gives us a few other details. Uh, He tells us that Judas tried to give the money back. Uh, He tried to give the money back to the Pharisees, um, and that he hanged himself. And so, you might think, well, these two stories seem a little contradictory. One says that Judas hanged himself, the other says that he fell headfirst and his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Um, We can take these two and and put them together to have an understanding that you know Judas went and hanged himself and either something went wrong, or I don't I don't know, after the hanging he had fallen and kind of had this gory picture. Um it's not something pleasant to think about, but when we think about the fact that, you know, Jesus is God. And he knew Judas' role from the very beginning. Jesus was not fooled. Jesus was not surprised when Judas betrayed him. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. But this event was necessary for Jesus' mission. This event, this betrayal was necessary for Jesus' mission. And that mission is summed up in, verse, or in John 3.16. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, Sorry, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, Jesus laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sins. He laid down his life to pay the penalty of our sins. The creator of the universe died because I am imperfect. But the best part of the story is that he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected in victory over sin and death. And it is through faith in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, that we can have eternal life, that we can have forgiveness of sins, that we can have salvation. All of this, all of this was dependent on Judas' betrayal. See, Jesus knew it was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. And so you look at the, the, the apostles, the remaining apostles, they would have been shocked at Judas' betrayal. The other people who followed Jesus, we know, we read in the scriptures that there's a group of about 120 who followed Jesus along with the disciples. They were shocked that one of Jesus's close friends would have betrayed him in such a manner that Jesus wasn't surprised. So coming back to the context of this passage, a little more immediate context, this is about 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. We read that at the beginning of the chapter and also we're told at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus took them out to the Mount of Olives and told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they went back and they prayed. They went back and waited for the Holy Spirit. And this is the setting where Peter stands up and makes this announcement. They have just seen Jesus ascended into heaven. They go back into the city, and they're together in community praying. And uh, Peter stands up, and uh, he speaks to the 120. He speaks to those that are there. And Luke and Acts, you see, Peter is kind of portrayed as one of the primary leaders of the early church, um, one of the primary leaders among the apostles. And so for Peter to stand up, And to make this announcement in front of the whole crowd, it wouldn't have been surprising to them because he was kind of uh, somebody in a leadership position. But what's interesting about this is that it doesn't say that they were actually reading the scriptures. You know, it's real easy for us to think in our modern Western context where, you know, all of us have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, see me, I can get you one. You know, where it's so easy for us to get a Bible. You know, you can go to Dollar Tree and they have copies of the Bible. You know, you can go to a hotel room and there's going to be a Bible in the, in the nightstand. We have Bibles everywhere. You know, I have numerous copies of the Bible on my bookshelf at home. Uh, a lot of times they don't even get open because I do most of my Bible reading on my phone or my computer nowadays. And so we have, we have such an easy access to God's Word. But see, at this time, they didn't. Not everybody had a copy of the Scriptures. Not everybody had multiple copies of the scriptures, and they definitely didn't have a smartphone that they could pull out of their pocket and look up whatever scripture they wanted to. You know, probably most of the synagogues would have had copies of the scriptures, but for an individual person to own one, they would have had to have been very, very wealthy. And so they weren't sitting there reading the scriptures together, but Peter stands up and quotes the scriptures. So we know that Peter knew the scriptures. He knew the Scriptures well enough that he could pull out a couple of obscure passages out of the Psalms and apply them to their current situation. So he knew his scriptures well. He knew the Bible well. And that can only happen through Bible study. That can only happen through dedicated time and in pouring into the Word and allowing the Word to pour into your soul. And see, these two Scriptures that he reads from Psalms, they're from uh, Psalm, 20, uh, sorry, Psalm 69, 25. In Psalm 109, 8. And these are Psalms from David about David's betrayers. And just as God had judged David's betrayers, so he has judged and punished Judas, the one who betrayed David's son, Jesus. And so, why was Peter able to apply these scriptures to their current context? We well, see, we know that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Bible is inspired by God. Yes, human authors would have been the ones who actually put the pen to paper or quill to papyrus or however it was that they did it. Yes, human authors were the physical act of it, but the thoughts and the words and the story and the truths came from God. God inspired the Bible. God is the author of the Bible. And so, um, When we know that the Bible is inspired by God, that leads us to study the Word. Since the Word is inspired by God, we study the Bible to know God. Apparently, that's the end of my notes. (laughs) Um, We study the Bible to know God. Speaking of smartphones, let me pull out my notes from here. Um, We were talking in Sunday school this morning that You know, I usually preach from my tablet. I woke up this morning, and the tablet was dead. And so we plugged it in, and I had it charging all Sunday school. And after Sunday school, I went back and I looked at my tablet, and it said it was 99% charged. So I thought, oh, good, that'll work great. So I unplugged it, and I brought it up here, and I got it ready, and I set it down. And then after the opening prayer, I picked it up and looked at it, and it said 1%, I'm about to die. And I was like, oh, no. So I had to run back in the office and print my notes. Apparently, those didn't print out very well either. So thankfully, you know, redundancy. You have many, many copies Um, So I'll be good to go. I'll find my spot real quick. Okay. Um, So if the Bible is inspired by the word of God, we study the Bible to know God. We study the Bible to know God. See, he revealed himself through the Bible. It is, uh, sorry, we know the Bible and we know God. The better we know the Bible, the better we know God. If you want to know God better, study your Bible. The better you know God, the better you know His character, and the better you know His expectations, the better we can fulfill His plan for our life. We also, since the Word is inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit, we study the Bible to hear from God. There are many Christians who say that, well, I haven't heard from God in years. And My question would be, when was the last time you opened your Bible? or opened your Bible app on your phone. See, God speaks to us through his word. It is his word. So by reading the Bible, he is speaking to us. And it is really easy sometimes to read the Bible and kind of say, well, I didn't really get anything out of that. That happens to me a lot of times when I'm reading through books like Numbers or Leviticus. It's really easy to look at those books and say, God, what are you trying to say here? I'm it's right over my head. I have no idea what you're trying to tell me. But we know, we know that God is speaking to us through his word. That's why it is so important for us to have a Bible study methodology. When you can have this structure where you can go to it and say, okay, this, this passage, God, it's kind of, it's not hitting me. So let me study it a little bit. Let me figure out what you're trying to tell me. We study the Bible to get God's perspective. If the Bible is inspired by God, if the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we study the Bible to get His perspective. See, it's real easy for us to go through life on our own understanding. It's real tempting for us to go through life on our own perspective. But when you're going through life on your own perspective, at best, it leads to pride and idolatry. But at worst... It leads to fear and confusion. But when we study God's word, we can get his perspective. And God tells us, yeah, things might not be going so great right now, but I love you and you are my child and I will care for you, I will comfort you, and I will protect you. That does not mean that everything all the time in the Christian life is going to be a bed of roses, but it does mean that God is on our side and that God is here for us. And that, at the end, we have a much, much better reward coming to us. Finally, if the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then we study the Bible for God's wisdom. See, the Bible does not directly address many of our concerns today, but the wisdom gained from studying scriptures can be applied to any situation today. You see, the Bible doesn't talk about Facebook or Instagram, or Twitter, or Snapchat, or any of these other um, social media apps. The Bible doesn't talk about that. But we can take the wisdom gained from studying the Bible and apply it to how we use technology nowadays. The Bible does not talk about online pornography, but the Bible does talk about protecting your heart and guarding your marriage. And that sex is only to be enjoyed in in the context of marriage. And so, no, the Bible doesn't talk about online pornography. But we can take the wisdom gained from that knowledge. We can take the wisdom gained from God's word and apply it to that context. The Bible doesn't talk about our stock market investments. You know, It doesn't talk about, well, you know, I've got all my retirement set up in this stock market investment and oh, the stock market just crashed. What am I supposed to do? The Bible doesn't talk about that. But the Bible does talk about being a good steward of whatever God has given us to be in charge of. We can take the knowledge and the wisdom gained from studying God's word and apply it to any situation, even though many of our current situation, many of our current contexts are not addressed directly in the Bible. We can still take the knowledge and apply it there. As a church, as Victory Baptist Church, you know, we don't see the words Victory Baptist Church in the Bible. We don't see Hope Mills, North Carolina in the Bible But what we do see is the book of Acts, and we see the early church and how they acted and how they strived, strived, strove, how they desired to build God's kingdom. And we can take the lessons from the early church and apply it to our vision here of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that first point, Bible study. Bible study is going to be an essential ingredient in our disciple-making strategy. Secondly, well, let's go back to the scripture. Verse 21, it says, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. From among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they propose two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, funny side note this week, Hannah said, uh, as she was reading through this earlier, she said, why is it that so many people in the Bible have so many different names? Here we have one guy with three names, Joseph, Barsabbas, uh, Barsabbas, and Justice. Uh, mm, That's a lot. And then the other guy, his name is Matthias. Uh, Verse 24 says, then they prayed, you, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So, verses 21 to 26, we're talking about dependence on the Holy Spirit. Depending on the Holy Spirit. Now, before we really get into this, I need to have a a little discussion about something called um, primary doctrine, secondary doctrine, and tertiary doctrine. Or, um, there's another word, uh, non-essential. So, primary doctrine, secondary doctrine, and non-essential doctrine. Now, the Holy Spirit and His role in our lives, that's a primary doctrine. You know, primary doctrine would be things that you must believe in order to be a Christian. Things like, Jesus is the Son of God, and yet Jesus is God, not a God. That's primary doctrine. Another example of primary doctrine is that Jesus' sacrifice is the only salvation from our slavery to sin. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I am a way or a truth. He says, I am the way. He is the only way to salvation. Jesus says, nobody comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't say, well, I'm one path that you can get to know the Father. He says, no, nobody comes to the Father but through me. And so belief in Jesus and his sacrifice for our salvation, that is primary doctrine. That's essential. These are things that if you don't believe these, then we're going to have to take an honest assessment and probably say, well, you're probably not a Christian. Secondary doctrine would be things that, you know, maybe we disagree on, but I'm still going to say you're a Christian. You know, things like uh, believer's baptism versus infant baptism. You know, as a Southern Baptist convention, we believe in believer's baptism. As we look through the Scriptures, we see that baptism is always performed as somebody as an expression of their faith, not an expression of their parents' faith. So we as, a, as Southern Baptists, we believe in believer's baptism. Um, another secondary doctrine would be something like female clergy or how or when does the Holy Spirit manifest itself among believers. These are what are called secondary doctrine. And usually, these are why we have denominational Uh, separations. These are why we have Southern Baptist Church and a Church of God or the Catholic Church. These are secondary doctrine. And thirdly, or tertiary, we have non-essential doctrine. And these are unclear topics. These are things that, you know, even people within the same church, people who share very, very strong similarities in their faith, they might still disagree on. Things like the timeline of the end of the world. You know, one of my best friends um, growing up, and he's still a really good friend, uh, David Probus, him and I disagree on um, whether or not Christians would be taken before the tribulation or if Christians are going to be here through the tribulation. This is what's called pre-trib or post-trib. See, David is pre-trib and I'm post-trib. But him and I, we, we worked for years together leading the youth at um uh, at my former church, um things like reform versus free will theology, you know, when you start talking about Calvinism and you know, is is there only a specific number of people who God has called to be saved, or has God called all of us to be saved and it's up to us and our free will to make that decision? These are non-essential doctrine. These are things where you know we might disagree on some of these topics, but we can still we can still worship together, we can still be members of the same church, and we can agree on most of these topics. So we can debate non-essential doctrine, but ultimately, these debates, they should lead to us having a greater love of God, a greater zeal for His mission, and a greater dependence on His grace, wisdom, and power. But when we start to debate these non-essential doctrines, and it starts to disrupt the unity of the church, when we let these non-essential doctrines tear us apart, then we are no longer glorifying God and we are letting the enemy come in and separate us. These non-essential doctrines are not something for us to, to, to stop working together with. These non-essential doctrines should not come between us. Well, honestly, the secondary doctrines shouldn't come between us either because we can still look at them and say, okay, you're a Christian, you have the same mission that I do we are both called to go and make disciples. And so we can still work with them. We can still go on mission with people who we disagree with on secondary and non-essential doctrines. And see, I bring that up because this, uh, the point that I'm bringing up next is a non-essential doctrine. In my study, I've come to the belief that choosing Matthias as the 12th apostle was a mistake. I don't think Matthias was supposed to be the 12th Apostle. There are good arguments for both of these. But ultimately, we can come back and say, no matter what, we know that we're supposed to depend on the Holy Spirit. that's the main point here, is that we are supposed to depend on the Holy Spirit. But so, why is this even an issue? Why is Matthias being the 12th Apostle, why is this even an issue? Well, we see later in the book of Acts that Jesus chose Paul we see Jesus chose Paul to be the twelfth apostle. You know, it's in the Bible. I'm uh, sorry. Uh, why is it even an issue that, okay, well, maybe Matthias and Paul are, are apostles. And so we have 13 apostles. In Revelation 21:14, 14, where uh, John is describing the New Jerusalem, he says, "...the city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations." In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Sorry. That's right there. Um, so, yes, I think the number 12 is important. It is important that we recognize 12 apostles, not 13. Well, some people would say, well, but it's in the Bible. It can't be a mistake. That... You know, the, the 11 apostles made this decision, and it's recorded in the Bible, so it cannot be a mistake. Well, see, sometimes the Bible lists things and actions in there that are more descriptive than prescriptive. See here, Luke is describing what had happened. He's not saying that they were following God's will in doing this. This happens a few other times in the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a couple of really good examples where King Saul consults a medium to to try to get Samuel's spirit and to hear from God again. Now clearly, God has spoken against practicing or, or seeking witchcraft and mediums. And so, even though it's in the Bible that Paul sought out this medium, that's not prescriptive. That's not something that we should do. And that's not something that we should recognize as, yeah, good job, Saul. No. You know, it's in there. It's describing what he had done. Also, You know, we read in the Old Testament where David murdered Uriah because he slept with Bathsheba. That being in the Bible is not a blessing of that action. That being in the Bible is describing that even though David is a broken man, even though David has made such gross mistakes, that he can still be described as a man after God's own heart. And that God has chosen this broken man to be the king over his people. That God has chosen this broken man so that through his lineage, Jesus God's Son, Jesus could come. So just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's something we should do. You know in the New Testament, Peter refuses to dine with Gentile Christians, and Paul steps up and, and calls him out on it and says, "Dude, you're, you're making a mistake here." So just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that that's what they were supposed to do. Um, so another question that comes up when we're talking about Matthias being chosen as an apostle, you know what about others in the Bible who are described as apostles? In Galatians 1.19, James, the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle, but he's not listed anywhere else in the lists of the apostles. But see, that's where we have to go back and, and really look at the language. In the Greek language, the word for apostle comes from the verb apostello. And you see that here. Um, apostello, that verb means to send off, or to send away. So in a sense, we're all apostles because uh, Jesus has sent us on a mission. But I think we can make a distinction between apostles and the apostles, the apostles of the Lamb, the apostles of Jesus. We can make a distinction between saying that we are all apostles and that the 12 apostles. You see, in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So yes, in a sense, we're all apostles because we have all been called to take the gospel to the whole world. We've all been called to take the gospel to Judea, all Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We're called to tell our neighbors the news that Jesus came to die for their sins to reconcile the relationship that, that they have that they have broken with God through their sin. We're called to take the gospel to our neighbors and tell them that there is hope in this life. We see brokenness all around us, but there is hope, and that hope is in Jesus, that He has come as our Redeemer to, to buy us out of our slavery to sin. So referring back to the verses above, um, talking about the 12 apostles' role in Revelation, I think we can make a distinction between uh, general apostles and um, the 12 apostles. And then so other people might come up and say, well, but Paul doesn't meet the requirements listed in verses 21 and 22. Those requirements, um, Peter is saying, therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. From among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Peter is saying that we're going to choose somebody who was with Jesus throughout his whole ministry, who walked physically with Jesus throughout his whole ministry to be to fill the role that Judas left. You know, that's a pretty good argument. But I think these requirements here are... Peter's requirements for an apostle. I think this list of requirements is Peter's idea of what it takes to be an apostle. And when we look at the other 11 apostles, or even 12 if we count Judas, they were all chosen by Jesus. Not because they were with Jesus his whole ministry, but they were chosen by him. So, in my opinion, that's the requirement to be counted among the 12. is to be chosen by Jesus. Thus, Paul, in my opinion, should be counted as a 12th apostle, not Matthias. So people look at that, and they say, well, how could they make such a mistake? That seems like a very important office to be an apostle. That's an important office, and I would agree, that's an important office. Well, how could they make such a gross mistake? Well, that goes back to verse 4 of the same chapter. Jesus told them, uh, while he was with them, he he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, But to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, You have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Jesus told them to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. Go and wait for the Holy Spirit. But they didn't. They didn't wait for the Holy Spirit. They went, and they started with action. Now, what's scary about this is that so far, I've given us five essential ingredients for our disciple-making strategy. That is, to honor the Sabbath, to participate in community of believers, prayer, studying the Scriptures, and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, of those five, this group was doing four of them. This group was doing four of those five. But they did not depend on the Holy Spirit. They did not wait for the Holy Spirit. So they made this mistake. So we at Victory Baptist Church must depend on the Holy Spirit. We must depend on the Holy Spirit to fulfill our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without depending on the Holy Spirit, we will fail. We won't do it. We won't do it. No matter how good our intentions are, No matter how much we pray or study our Bible, or we're in community with each other, if we're not depending on the Holy Spirit, we're going to fail. We see in chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit was sent to the believers. And see, for us, the Holy Spirit comes as soon as we become a believer. See, I don't have special access to the Holy Spirit. Nobody has special access to the Holy Spirit other than if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, when we're coming together as believers, please don't look to me as the sole access to the Holy Spirit. I don't have sole access to the Holy Spirit. We all have access to the Holy Spirit. Thus, we all need to depend on the Holy Spirit to make decisions for this church, to make decisions for our lives. We all need to depend on the Holy Spirit every moment of our life, every moment of every day, depending on the Holy Spirit. But see, this is where it gets complicated. Though all Christians have the Holy Spirit, we have to learn to listen to Him. We're all given the Holy Spirit when we are saved. We are given the Holy Spirit when we are saved. But we're not given a knowledge of how to listen to Him. We're not suddenly endowed with this, this great um, cell phone where the Holy Spirit can call us and talk to us on or a radio where He can two-way with us and talk about you know what He wants us to do. We have to learn to listen to Him. We have to learn to follow His guidance. We have to learn to seek the Holy Spirit and His wisdom and His guidance. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, the fact that we have God living in us, is encouraging. It's comforting. But it does not mean that we will always make the right choices. Just because we have the Holy Spirit does not mean that we're always listening to Him. So we must strive to depend daily on the Holy Spirit as individuals and as a church. So we look at this and we think about our disciple-making strategy. And earlier I put up the, uh, the stages of, a, uh, of spiritual maturity. Hopefully, well not hopefully, necessarily, the farther that you progress down that, uh, those stages of spiritual maturity, the more disciplined you become in following the Holy Spirit. Part of disciple-making is that as I become a more mature disciple, I do not become stronger, but I allow the Holy Spirit to work through me. Me becoming a better disciple does not mean that I am becoming stronger. It does not mean that I am becoming wiser. Becoming a better disciple means that I am surrendering more to the Holy Spirit. I'm surrendering more day by day to the Holy Spirit. As we grow as a church, it's real easy to think, okay, well, God, we've, kind of, we've made it out of the muddy waters now. And you know, we've, we might have a little extra money in the bank or we've got a whole bunch of extra people here. Then you know, we can kind of step back and say, all right, God, we can handle this. You go worry about another church now. But I will say that we take this time now to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit and as we grow, we cannot forget it. As we grow, we continue to depend on the Holy Spirit. It is essential for our disciple-making disciple making strategy. It is essential for our vision that we depend on the Holy Spirit. So the application, the application for this message, first, is to believe in the gospel. The first application here is that if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, do so today. He died for our sins. The Lord of creation, the creator of the universe, came to live on this earth to die for our sins because he loved us. He came because uh, his mission was to glorify God. Our second application point is to study your Bible. Take the time to study your Bible. If you don't yet have a daily Bible reading plan or a uh, a daily Bible reading habit, go ahead and get into that plan. That is one of the most important things that you can do as a believer is to read your Bible every day. Also, I think it's important for us to be in group Bible study. Not just preaching. Preaching is extremely important, but it's also important for us to be in group Bible study. Studying the Bible with other believers. And the third uh, application point is to depend on the Holy Spirit. Realize that on our own we are powerless. On our own, we all make mistakes. But our power to make disciples, to grow closer to God, to help others to grow closer to God, our power to glorify God comes from the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so wonderful. You are holy. and You are righteous. You are just. But Lord, you are also loving and you are kind. Even though you are holy and just and we are not, you sent your son out of love to die for our sins. Lord, you have revealed yourself through your creation. You have revealed yourself through your word and you have revealed yourself through your spirit. Lord, I pray that each of us, that every one of us can take the time to study your word, to depend on your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you will help each and every one of us to take this message today and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.